The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1964, the Oxford professor John Barrington Wayne wrote, quote, Romeo and Juliet is as perfectly achieved as anything in Shakespeare's work. It is a flawless little jewel of a play. It has the clear, bright colors, the blend of freshness and formality of an illuminated manuscript. End quote. Like many of Shakespeare's best works, the story of these star-crossed lovers, their love forbidden by their feuding families, is so entrenched in our culture that it's difficult for us to see it with fresh eyes. Its ubiquity and its many imitators have turned it into something like a cliché. But it would be a shame to treat it as one, because as usual, Shakespeare has given us a play with keen insight into the human condition, and one that runs deeper, I would argue, than the play is often given credit for. We'll take a look at how the plot drives the characters and sheds light on their personalities. And of course, we'll take a look at love, untangling the braided themes of falling in love, being in love, and lust. And finally, I'll explain why my latest reading of Romeo and Juliet kept making me think of George Carlin. That's right, the comedian George Carlin, of all people. But soft... What episode through yonder earbuds breaks? Tis the East. And the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet is the sun. Today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Today's a good one. Romeo and Juliet. Perhaps the greatest love story in all of literature. What else comes close? Elizabeth and Darcy, Dante and Beatrice, Paolo and Francesca, Antony and Cleopatra, Lancelot and Guinevere, Abelard and Eloise. You might find one that's richer or subtler or more complex than Romeo and Juliet. Withering Heights, Anna Karenina. You might have a particular favorite. Some may prefer... Films like Casablanca, Gone with the Wind. Some might reach for something more modern. Or the biggest, most common jump, to look for grown-ups. To look for mature love, marriage. Not just elided by happily ever after, but an up-close look at the domestic, day-to-day kind of love. Love that sustains, that overcomes obstacles that is weathered by experience, that stands the test of time. A love that deals with the things that life throws at us, joy and heartbreak and boredom and grief. We might say we prefer that kind of love story. And then we'll be outnumbered by those who take Romeo and Juliet. Why is it so popular? Everyone agrees that the story is a little improbable. People scoff at the ending. Juliet pretends to be dead in order to avoid the marriage that's been arranged for her by her father. Romeo thinks she actually is dead and kills himself. Juliet then sees what he's done and kills herself. If you read this when you're too young or when you're too old, you might snicker at that, just as you might snicker at Romeo, the mournful boy full of himself a thinly disguised narcissus in love with being in love. We've all known Romeos, 
and we've all known Juliet's, and many of us have been them at one time or another. Why do we scoff? I'll get to that. I have some ideas about what it means and what Shakespeare was up to. But first, let me give you my thanks. These are exciting times here at the History of Literature podcast. Our audience is growing, and that's an exciting thing. I'm pleased and proud, of course, but I'm also very humble. This is not about me. I think this is about the books. There are some crazy things going on out there in the world. We're in an election season, at least here in America, and this one is more depressing than most. I'm not surprised that people are willing to download something called the history of literature, a search for sanity, a refuge of sorts. Well, that's what we try to do. Intelligent adult conversation and a community of people who care about life and literature and empathy. Literature is empathy. In any case, however you came here or for whatever purpose, welcome. I'm thrilled you're here and I'm very grateful. Okay, on with the show. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Romeo and Juliet was first performed in 1594 on the cusp of Shakespeare's mature period. He was about 30 years old. That's important. Where was he at 30? What did he know of love? We know a few biographical facts. Shakespeare was married in 1582 at the age of 18. His wife, Anne Hathaway, was 26 when they married. She gave birth six months later. We speculate from these facts. Maybe the marriage was reluctant for Shakespeare, unwanted, too early for an 18-year-old, a shotgun marriage. But we can also speculate about the affair that preceded the marriage, exciting, head-spinning, with trips to the nearby village to visit an older, perhaps more experienced mistress. We don't really know if either speculation is true. Maybe marriage was Shakespeare's goal all along. In any case, by the time of Romeo and Juliet, this was part of his past, and other loves too. He was writing sonnets at this time. The sonnets date from 1592 to 1598. At least, that's our best estimate. Dates are hard to pin down. But the sonnets suggest that there were at least two other intense passions for Mr. Shakespeare. One with a young man, the mysterious 
Mr. W.H., although this was probably not a mister at all, but an aristocrat, and it's not clear whether this particular relationship was sexual. The second passion does appear to have included sex. These are the sonnets to and about the dark lady. We'll definitely have an episode on the sonnets, which are fascinating. For Romeo and Juliet, here's what we need to know. Shakespeare at 30 has had a lot of experiences with love. He's had passions. He's been in love. He's spent years in and around the theater. We can expect some licentiousness from that. But we also know that at the very least, he's been a young man with an older woman. And it appears that he's been an older man with a young man. He's known illicit affairs and steady, formalized, day-to-day marriage. And now he's turning 30. Age is so important to understanding Romeo and Juliet. The play is often performed, of course, and it's often filmed. The best film is generally thought to be the one directed in 1968 by Franco Zeffirelli. The reviews from that film are incredible, and they're revealing. Romeo and Juliet are so young. The actors are so young. This changes everything. That's the tenor of the reviews. Roger Ebert noted this in a review he wrote in 1968, and many others have noted it since. If you read Amazon reviews today, that's one of the things people talk about most, over and over, how young the actors are. In 1936, Hollywood had made a version of Romeo and Juliet. Norma Shearer played Juliet. She was 35 at the time. Leslie Howard played Romeo. He was 40. In Zeffirelli's film, the actor playing Romeo, Leonard Whiting, was 17. Juliet was played by 15-year-old Olivia Hussey. In the play, Juliet is 13. She's almost 14, but she's 13. And this was a very specific choice. The source, the original Romeo and Juliet story, had her at 16. Shakespeare made her even younger. That's curious. It's as if he wanted to clarify, in case anyone doubted, that this was a play about first love. And Shakespeare's daughter, Susanna, would have been about 13 at this time. How much did he draw from her? It's hard to know. But it's something to keep in mind, both in the portrayal of Juliet and the portrayal of her father, Capulet. We'll get to that in a moment. But there's more I want to say first about the forms of love. Romeo and Juliet is about two characters, but really, the play is about love itself. We distinguish two kinds of romantic love. There is falling in love, and there is being in love. I don't think anyone disputes that these two psychological states exist, or that they're different, very different things. The initial burst of love, that is real. It happens, and it's temporary. It's very, very unusual for this to be the prolonged state of love, maybe impossible. Marriage is different. Marriage is, if one is lucky, about being in love, about the steadiness of love, the mutual give and take, the appreciation, the admiration, the sharing of a history, the right amount of dependence on one another, and independence. Marital love, or Long-term relationship love is about something that can last, but falling in love is different. Falling in love is the burst of energy, 
the overwhelming sensation. Why is it called falling? Why not rising in love? It's been theorized that it's because falling in love shares its common features with depression, moodiness, irrational behavior, gloom. But even more than that, it's something beyond our control. We fall, we're surprised, taken unaware. You don't stumble and rise up a flight of stairs, you fall down them. If you're walking through a forest, you don't suddenly wind up on top of a tree. But if you don't see the pit before you, you might fall into it. That's what this kind of love is. It's sudden, it's a surprise, it's out of our control, it's irrational, and it changes everything. When you fall into the pit, you are transformed. Your day turns to night immediately. Your freedom turns to captivity immediately. You have fallen. Shakespeare knows this. Shakespeare, in some ways, Shakespeare is ageless. The fact that he's 30 is important, but is perhaps less important than it seems. Tolstoy said this when he was asked how he could write so many different characters with such insight, humans and animals even. Tolstoy said, when I unlocked myself, I unlocked everyone. That's Shakespeare too. He has the ability to unlock everyone. He can write about an adolescent male or an adolescent female, and they're both plausible. They both ring true. Not just because Shakespeare may have lived through those loves and remembered what they were like, although I suspect he did, but also because Shakespeare has empathy for humans. Shakespeare was open. He was curious. He inhabited the world as it was, not the world as his brain told him it should be. His brain is always engaged, but it doesn't get in the way of his eyes and ears or his heart. Now, to understand the interest in romantic love, both for Shakespeare and his audience, we have to understand the age. What was love like? Was it marriages of convenience, of good matches, of families marrying daughters to sons, like the one Capulet eventually turns to and tries to impose on Juliet when he nearly forces Juliet to marry Count Paris? The critic Germaine Greer has summarized the attitude toward marriage at this age like this. Quote, Oceans of ink were spilt in England during the Reformation over the status of the married life, the rights of lovers, and the interest of parents in their children's matings. The consensus was that parents indeed have some say in how their children disposed of themselves, but no parent could force a child to marry against its will or refuse a match which was otherwise suitable. In such cases, the children could have redress to the ecclesiastical authorities. The common people were scandalized by the dynastic marriages arranged by the nobility, who disposed of their children as if they had been so many cattle and sheep, especially when so many of the marriages clapped up with wards of the crown later came to violent or adulterous ends. End quote. That's an interesting view, a society in transition. And the leaders of society, the kings and queens and aristocrats, are looking at marriages for their purpose, their utility. The common people, though, look for love. Juliet and Capulet are somewhere in between, and Capulet shifts. In Act 1, Scene 2, he tells Count Paris that Juliet is too young to be married. A couple more years 
he says. Let two more summers wither in their pride, ere we may think her ripe to be a bride. But even more vividly, he tells Paris that Juliet's consent will be all-important. But woo her, gentle Paris, get her heart, my will to her consent is but a part. And she agreed within her scope of choice lies my consent and fair according voice. Capulet reverses himself in a day. That's fast, but the whole play is fast. Time is compressed. It makes for an exciting play. Romeo starts the play in love with Rosalind. He's moody, he's pining for her, he's miserable. He goes to a party to see her. Instead, he sees Juliet. They exchange a few words and immediately fall in love. They kiss. Romeo leaves the party and turns around and goes to Juliet's house. That night, that's the balcony scene, the night they first met. They've known each other for hours. And of course, what's next? He has to go to the friar and tells him, you need to marry us today. It has not even been 24 hours since the two have met. They get married that afternoon. They plan to meet that night which is fine, except that after the marriage, Romeo runs into his enemies, gets drawn against his will into a fight, and kills Juliet's cousin Tybalt. He spends the night with Juliet, but he's already banished. Their marriage is doomed. The next morning, he pries himself away from Juliet and heads off to exile in Mantua. It is now 36 hours since they first laid eyes on one another. It's thrilling, there are no distractions in the play. The play rushes forward. Their love, the love of Romeo and Juliet, is like a river crashing down its banks, the water rolling over the boulders in its path. And what are the obstacles? The poet W.H. Auden pointed out that in drama, romantic love always needs obstacles in order to remain effective. The obstacles can be the personalities of the characters, the prejudices that they might have, misunderstandings that have developed between them, or, in this famous case, the families that have been feuding since time immemorial for some reason that nobody seems to know. Because, as Auden suggests, the real obstacle to love, the one that will sap its dramatic strength, is time. That's why Romeo and Juliet is compressed into hours rather than weeks or months or years. The intense, romantic love can't be allowed to dwindle. That's Auden's word. Dwindle. Into friendship or domestic married love. Shakespeare clearly recognizes this. There's a dramatic advantage to compressing actions and events into a short period of time. It's not just plays about love that do this. But in this case, it's all the more important. It parallels what the lovers are feeling. Their love feels to them like lightning. The comparisons to light are everywhere. Fire, lightning, gunpowder. All the metaphors for love are like this. Love is sudden. You're falling into the pit. And it's fast, and it's bright, and it's overwhelming. Juliet says that a minute without Romeo feels as long as days. There's a great scene with the nurse. Juliet's nurse, just after the nurse has gone to see Romeo and arranged the marital night, 
Juliet is extremely impatient with her when she returns. The nurse arrives, and even though she's just shown us how excited she is that Romeo, this beautiful, perfect man, is going to marry Juliet, her mistress, whom she's known since she was a baby. Even though the nurse is excited about this, like someone who remembers what it's like to be young and in love, she flops down, exhausted from the journey, and says she's too tired to speak. And Juliet is beside herself. Just say one word, I or nay, come on, don't make me wait. And this is the impatience of first love. We can say fallen in love, but we can also use the other metaphors, mad with love crazy in love. What's the nurse doing here? Teasing Juliet? Maybe a little. But I think the nurse is also representing the different point of view, the adult point of view, the mature, been there, done that point of view. Love is a flame, but the initial burst has to steady itself. It has to turn into something that can endure. It can't just flare out. That's the nurse in that scene. Just wait, Juliet. Slow down. Take a deep breath. I'll give you the news. You can't be this impatient for this long. Eventually, Juliet, you need to relax and settle into something longer and more permanent. That's what love is, if it's going to last. That's the adult view. And the nurse turns on Juliet eventually for this very reason. When Romeo is banished, Juliet's father has proposed Paris as a husband, and the nurse, who unlike Juliet's father, knows all about Romeo, the nurse says, yeah, that's a good idea. He's, he's pretty good looking, Count Paris, he's a good choice. Romeo is banished. That way lies heartbreak and misery and struggle. Paris is going to be so much easier for you, Juliet. Juliet, of course, doesn't see things this way. Ancient damnation, she says. Oh, most wicked fiend. That's her view of the nurse when the nurse proposes that Paris might be better than Romeo. Juliet seems to be saying, here's yet another person trying to come between us. Get out of our way. Get out of the way of this love. Don't you understand? Romeo with the friar has the same kind of exchange. He's in the same state of mind as Juliet. Time for him is essentially meaningless. Or maybe it's better to say that it's all distorted. He considers that maybe a minute with Juliet might be worth the entire rest of his life. That if he could have a minute with her, or a lifetime without her, he'd take a minute. Plus death. The friar, like the nurse, is somewhat sympathetic, but he also sees the dangers. These violent delights have violent ends, he says, and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which as they kiss, consume. Romeo and Juliet play with this idea the morning after their marriage. Romeo has spent the night in her room. Light comes in the window. Yet again, the passage of time is the third character here, the villain, the obstacle that needs to be overcome. Light and time means discovery and struggle and the potential for the love to dwindle. And Romeo and Juliet look out at the lace on the clouds in the east. 
and the daylight starting to shine on the misty mountaintops. And Romeo says he has to leave and live or stay and die. And Juliet says, maybe you can stay just a little longer. And Romeo says he would, even if it means death. And all this is what it means to be crazy in love and to have time feel so breathless. Time is so important. Minutes. Seconds together. Now, people who look at the difference between falling in love and being in love have noted that falling in love is essentially narcissistic. That's the argument, that falling in love is about you, how you feel, and that being in love is accepting that you are part of another, something larger. Being in love, that is, being part of domesticated marital love, is being part of a community. Literally, it has community ties, but it is also an active community in that it takes an understanding of another person, an acceptance of that person's flaws, a willingness to let go of one's own ego. But falling in love is just me, 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 and that's why Romeo and Juliet get a bad rap sometimes. Romeo, the moony, moody, brooding Romeo, who's in love with his own love for Rosalind, looks like someone who is in love with his own ability to love, his own version of himself as a great romantic person. And we associate that with immaturity. And when we grow out of it, we're embarrassed by it. It does feel egotistical. It is egotistical in a way. Shakespeare recognizes this. But how interesting that he doesn't stop there. And how interesting the contrast between Rosalind and Juliet. Rosalind is chaste. That's something I'd forgotten. She didn't choose someone else over Romeo. She chose a life of chastity. She preferred nothing, or maybe God, to the kind of romantic love that consumes Romeo. Juliet, though, is right there with him. Juliet is as head over heels as he is. Juliet is an awesome match for Romeo. That's the other thing that I'd forgotten, that Juliet isn't just the love object of the pining Romeo who nobly fills her part of the tragedy. She's as hot as he is. She falls just like he does. There's a great scene where she finds out that Romeo, her husband, the evil Montague that she's fallen for, has killed her cousin Tybalt. Her response is to feel angry and tricked, and she curses Romeo. Oh, serpent heart! hid with a flowering face. Did ever dragon keep so fair a cave? Beautiful tyrant, fiend angelical, dove-feathered raven, wolvish ravening lamb, despised substance of divinest show, just opposite to what thou justly seemst, a damned saint, an honorable villain. O oh, nature, what hadst thou to do in hell when thou didst bower the spirit of a fiend in mortal paradise of such sweet flesh? Was ever book containing such vile matter so fairly bound? Oh, that deceit should dwell in such a gorgeous palace. That's pretty clear. <laughs> Juliet said, you killed my cousin. I ate you. I was tricked. And the nurse agrees with her. There's no trust, no faith, no honesty in men, says the nurse. All perjured, all forsworn, all dissemblers. Ah, where's my man? Give me some aqua vitae. These griefs, these woes, these sorrows make me old. Shame come to Romeo. 
And Juliet immediately changes her mind. <laughs> it's four and a half lines by the nurse. That's long enough. It's long enough for Juliet to completely change her mind. She says to the nurse, Blistered be thy tongue for such a wish. He was not born to shame. Upon his brow shame is ashamed to sit, for tis a throne where honor may be crowned, sole monarch of the universal earth. Oh, what a beast I was! To chide at him. This is so awesome. This is the Juliet I love. Time is compressed once again. Sure, let's mourn Tybalt. Let's acknowledge that we are Capulets. There's this feud. I remember that. Montagues are treacherous dogs. But wait. I love Romeo. He's my husband. I'm not going to forget that. Romeo and Juliet are the perfect match. The flame and the powder. And their love is both wrong and right. That's the great contradiction of the play. Wrong and right are entangled. Maybe the greatest obstacle to overcome for them is to untangle the two. Their love is illicit because of the feud of their families. And yet, the feud is pointless. Love should triumph. Romeo has to sneak into the party, sneak over the wall to see Juliet at the balcony, marry Juliet in secret, sneak to their marital bed, sneak away to Mantua. Juliet, meanwhile, has to defy her parents, hide Romeo in her room, and so on. None of this is above board. The whole relationship is illicit from the beginning to the end. And yet, we don't blame them for any of it. Not just because we believe in their love. We see the effects that it has. There's a critic from 1847, Herman Ulrici, commenting on the effect that love with Juliet has on Romeo. Quote, Rosalind's Romeo is a melancholy, heavy, idle dreamer, wholly absorbed in his own frosty reflections on the matter of love. Juliet's Romeo, on the other hand, is a cheerful, lively youth of a sparkling mind and wit. End quote. It's a shrewd observation. That's where Shakespeare is in this. Here's Sir Francis Bacon, writing in 1612. Wait. Who? I know I can hear I can hear some of you asking that. Sir Francis Bacon. Many have thought that he actually was the author of Shakespeare's plays. But listen to this quote. quote Men ought to beware of this passion, which loseth not only other things, but itself. For whosoever esteemeth too much of amorous affection quitteth both riches and wisdom. They do best who, if they cannot but admit love, yet make it keep quarter, and sever it wholly from their serious affairs and actions of life. End quote. Does that sound like someone who wrote Shakespeare's plays? Does that sound like someone who wrote Romeo and Juliet? He's saying, it's time to grow up. Compartmentalize love. Well, that may be the adult view, and in Shakespeare... The Shakespeare of Romeo and Juliet is certainly aware that that's the adult view. It's the view held by the friar. It's the view held by Juliet's father, Capulet. It's the view held by the nurse. Be responsible. Keep love in perspective. But Shakespeare, unlike Sir Francis Bacon, is also with Romeo and with Juliet. 
And they say, responsible. Keep love in perspective. Why should we? Why should we get old and boring just because that's what you did? It's the voice of adolescence, the cry of adolescence. And Shakespeare in this play is on its side. He could have made this driven by lust. He knew how to do that. If you read the Waste of Shame sonnet, you know that Shakespeare knows how lust makes one act foolishly. But that's different from romantic love. And Shakespeare knew that too. He knew how love felt to a young person, how love ties into all those youthful, adolescent feelings. Why do we have to hate because our families hate each other? It makes no sense. Who are you to tell us how to feel? Who are you to tell us what is good for us to do? All the adults in the audience watching Romeo and Juliet would tell Romeo to accept banishment. Don't be a fool. You're lucky. The friar speaks for us, voices our view. You're lucky to be banished instead of killed. You can go to this nearby city, send messages back to Juliet, hope for a pardon from the prince, let your love settle into something steady, which is inevitable anyway. That's what's going to happen. You're going to mature. So choose life, Romeo. And Romeo says, that does not sound like life to me. Life for me is passion and intensity and love. And I want this feeling, this feeling that I'm feeling right now when I see Juliet or I want nothing at all. To not have that is to not have anything. The play is in Dame Peggy Ashcroft's phrase, a golden tragedy. This is the first love that refuses to age and dwindle. This is the dream of the adolescent, the viewpoint. It's Shakespeare viewing the world through adolescent eyes. I think that's where the golden comes in. Why does Shakespeare have Romeo kill Tybalt? Some say, it points out, the lovers will never be able to overcome their families, that it's reality intruding. And Mercutio represents this reality. The poet John Dryden, who did not live that long after Shakespeare, relayed a story that may have been true. He said that Shakespeare had said, I had to kill Mercutio or he would have killed me. Mercutio is dynamic and may have taken over the play. He also represents reality. These families aren't going to give up their feud. Romeo and Juliet and their love will be the victims of that. But Mercutio and the subsequent death of Tybalt suits Shakespeare's larger point. There's no chance for the lovers to persuade those around them that true love has won and should triumph over a pointless feud. There are no scenes where Romeo and Juliet make the rational case for their love. Instead, Romeo is forced into exile, and love, even married love, remains illicit. Shakespeare, at age 30, is telling his audience, I know, I know, you think these two are crazy. But this play is going to take falling in love seriously. Maybe your attitude, your mature attitude, with your cynicism, 
your pessimism, your jaded, knowing, condescending view of falling in love, maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's the lovers with their lightning and passion and fire and powder. Maybe that's better. Maybe that's where truth is. Maybe you shouldn't be rolling your eyes at the intense, passionate, early love. Maybe you should respect it. That's why this play is so popular with young people. It takes them as seriously as they take themselves. Capulet changes his mind quickly. He says that Juliet falling in love with Paris, consenting, choosing is important. The next day, he says, well, she'll love him, and if she doesn't, she'll obey me, and she'll marry him. And yes, it's a plot device, because it's the prospect of the forced marriage to Paris that sets the tragedy in motion. And yes, it mirrors the transition that society was making from arranged marriages to romantic love marriages, and Capulet is in that in-between sector of society, rich enough to make a strategic marriage important, but not so rich that it's inevitable. But more than that, I think it's Shakespeare tapping into that feeling of being an adolescent. Obey you? Obey you why? It's the world through the eyes of an adolescent. You can almost hear Juliet saying, Did you say yesterday that my happiness, my choice, my consent was important? Haven't you been saying that? And now you're saying that my consent means nothing to you. And the adult protests in response, I only have your happiness in mind. I've seen what falling in love leads to. I've seen the misery, the violent ends that come to violent delights, as the friar would say. I want what's best for you. I see things in a way that you don't. Shakespeare has sympathy for the adults. The nurse and the friar are not evil villains. They're complex. Dr. Johnson pointed out that the nurse is that kind of character that Shakespeare loved to write. The nurse, he wrote, is one of the characters in which the author delighted. He has, with great subtlety of distinction, drawn her at once loquacious and secret, obsequious and insolent, trusty and dishonest. The nurse and the friar understand love, and they care about Romeo and Juliet. They want them to be happy and they're doing what they think is best. They're acting like adults do, saying things that adults, reasonable, rational grown-ups, tend to say. And Juliet, like every teenager everywhere, has felt strongly at one time or another, says, everything you say sounds to me like hypocrisy. You say you care about my happiness, and yet you do things that make me unhappy, and I don't see you Looking out for me in my best interests, I see you trying to stamp out what I, I'm interested in. I see you ignoring my feelings, or worse, replacing them with your rationality. But just because your life got boring doesn't mean that mine has to. I'll take a minute of fire over a lifetime of dull glow. Romeo and Juliet find this feeling in each other. It's the song of the adolescent. And then they make it come true. Their life doesn't grow boring. Their passionate love never dwindles. They never give that up. And Shakespeare tells us, here's a tragedy. Not just that two warring families 
have killed two lovers. But that passionate love, first love, always dies. It never lasts. Lightning cannot stay permanently in the sky. Powder cannot hold its flash. And Romeo and Juliet are not shallow and superficial. They're young. And that's a very different thing. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to William Shakespeare, who has given me so much pleasure. I left out a couple of things. Romeo and Juliet was a runaway hit, Shakespeare's first real hit, and it was immediately put into all kinds of unauthorized printed versions. It was like a bestseller. It was the Titanic of its day. And Titanic, of course, like West Side Story and so many other works that have followed, is essentially retelling the same story. I also mentioned George Carlin at the beginning. Here's the quote I kept thinking about. Quote, At 68, I'm every age I ever was. I always think of that. I'm not just 68. I'm also 55 and 21 and 3. End quote. And that quote, struck me as important to understanding Shakespeare, how he could so fully inhabit the minds of Romeo and Juliet, two teenagers. He remembered that age, and he was like Tolstoy, blessed with a genius that enabled him to inhabit the minds and views of others. And the audience, too, remembers what it's like to be 21 and 17 and 13. We're still those ages, too. Young people might not think that, might think that we've forgotten, but we haven't. We might act condescending now and then because it's true. We've seen a lot of loves fade and a lot of bad things happen and a lot of youthful energy dwindle. We know young people are reckless and have brushes with death, that they seek these things out in order to test their own mortality. And we're scared because we've seen the horrors of that, some horrible outcomes. We know the power of the feeling and how quickly it can turn into heartbreak if not tragedy. So we advise maturity. But we don't forget the violent delights of first love. That's why we like this play too, even if we forget sometimes just how close it is to something we once lived through ourselves. I left out George Carlin's punchline, so let me just thank you all for your comments and feedback and remind you that you can find our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and that it really helps us out if you... Subscribe to the podcast and leave us ratings and reviews. And we're rolling onto Facebook now, so feel free to visit us there too. And then, let me let George have the last word. At 68, I'm every age I ever was, he said. I always think of that. I'm not just 68. I'm also 55 and 21 and 3. And then he added, especially 3. How great. He was the best boy, could we use him now. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 